Thank you for downloading episode four of Cigars with Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon's words are as relevant to the church today as they were 150 years ago. My name is Travis, and I am grateful for the opportunity to learn from Spurgeon. Thank you for joining me. This is the second half of a conversation between me and my friends, Josh and Brian. In the first part, we talked about our own salvation experiences as we looked at The Great Change, which was Spurgeon's own testimony of salvation recorded in his autobiography. And now the conversation turns to one of Spurgeon's sermons, titled Sovereignty and Salvation. Links to both source texts will be available in the show notes. So the second piece is Sovereignty and Salvation, and that one's a sermon, and it's not strictly about Spurgeon's own salvation experience. He alludes to it several times throughout, but it is over the same text, the text that he heard in that Methodist church, Isaiah forty-five twenty-two: look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. This one, I remember the first time I heard this read aloud at hearspurgeon.com. It struck me as, you know, kind of everything in one. It's, it's very funny. It's witty. And uh, so I actually laughed out loud a couple times throughout it. It's fiery and passionate. Uh, and, and it's also sweet at the same time for a guy who believed so strongly in assurance of your salvation. You know, like I said, for me, it's not something I've always felt. There's definitely been a time in my life where I didn't have an assurance of salvation where I was certain. In fact, I probably would have said I was certain I wasn't saved. But even even during those times, you know, looking back, I think taking what Spurgeon says about about the gospel uh, and and the simplicity of it and everything, I, I think it did. It, it it gave me assurance. I found great comfort in it. Brian, would you like to go first? Let me know if there's anything that stuck out to you in the sermon specifically. Sure. And, uh, you know, just, just kind of reflecting on this by way of context, you know, looking briefly at his the order of sermons, you know, number 60 of his recorded sermons, he was not preaching through the book of Isaiah at the time. Uh, he was not going through one book and doing expository sermons like sometimes we encounter with the process that we hear preaching. Uh, so he was, you know, selecting texts and uh, perhaps this one struck him because it landed on his anniversary date of salvation or, you know, the spirit led him in some other way to, to preach from this text. But I never really pondered the, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, we have this text that unlocked, you know, the key to salvation uh, for a particular individual and to have him go back and preach on that text. Uh, it's kind of made me wonder, you know, what, what, what he was thinking. I mean, what a, what a blessed opportunity to go back and hear him expound on the word of God um, in this particular verse that uh, was so meaningful to him to hear his thoughts, not just from an account of his salvation, but have him go and uh, piece apart the text. Um, but again, wonder what, uh, what reaction was received that morning what uh what reaction he was he was expecting you know obviously diligently praying for sinners to be saved from from any service but what was in his heart and was that something where he was questioning whether that text would be as meaningful to others had he had he thought he found that key and was going to uh you know present it to his hearers that day 
obviously everyone has a different uh, time and appointment with God, uh, but that was uh, something that it was just a little new to me as taking the text that you were sitting under hearing when you were saved and uh, then having the opportunity to preach that. That was just striking just from the, uh, the, initial, the initial thought on the text without even getting into to his sermon in general. I recall reading on, I think it was just on Wikipedia, but uh, they mentioned that he, he didn't really do altar calls the way that we have them nowadays, um, but that he would invite people to come to his office the next day to uh, talk with him if they had made a decision, um, if they wanted to give their lives to Christ, and, and that basically he never failed to have someone at his office the next day. And when you're preaching to thousands of people at a time, I guess that goes with the territory. What about you, Josh? Anything in particular that you saw? I mean, I, I like the way he kind of presents that, you know, that first point of, about, I think it is how has God been teaching, you know, this lesson of, of, uh, you know, kind of based around that verse for, for unto me or look unto me and, and be saved uh, for I am God and there is none else. And, and he kind of does it in the negative where he's like, well, actually let's look at what he's done for everybody that's been wrong uh, before uh, and he, you know, he kind of starts with some of the nations and, he, and some of the false gods. And, uh, but he gets to the philosophers, which, you know, really kind of pokes at me a little bit because there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of philosophical thought that I, I, I do appreciate and, and I really do love, you know, Berlin, I, you, you and we've talked about this a lot. Um, I really do. I really do like considering not, maybe not considering, but thinking through, you know, the whole point Nietzsche, I think, is trying to make when he says, you know, God is dead and we've killed him. Because I don't think you just hear that. Um, and, and I don't think you, you just hear that and walk away, right? Um, I, I think it's easy to say, oh, no, God's not dead. And then you make a movie about it, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's not so much that I, I think it's something that's worth, okay, considering like, okay, wh- why would I say that that's wrong, right? So, so I like that he puts that, he, and he's so easy to say, you know, the philosophers are wrong. And it's like, okay, I get it, but, but I think there's things here worth considering, right? And, and maybe taking a critical point on, um, because to me, for instance, it really helps me build out who I actually believe God is. If, okay, let's say, like, if he is or is not dead, because I think there's a practical explanation to it. And to me, it's that, let me, I'll just give you my kind of quick answer to this that I'm rolling off on a tangent about is that, uh, you know, what Nietzsche was trying totally getting at is the idea that God's dead. There is, you know, how do we live now? Right. The, 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 the creator and the bedrock of all morals is gone. The morals are gone right with him. So what do we do now? Um, and I think what we have found and you know, from the time he said that what in like 1880 or whatever, that there is, not that we have gone way worse and we have seen the world get worse. I mean, cause we have world war one and world war two and nuclear bombs. And I mean, we could see things kind of, you know, okay, let's say that, you know, from that point, what you're saying is that all moral has, de- you know, morality has decayed with the death of God. And now what do we do? And it's like, well, we don't know what to do because we've just killed a whole lot of people. Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people have now died due to this kind of thought. So practically it doesn't work. Um, and I'm not trying to make a moral argument for the existence of God. I'm just saying that, that it's worth considering, you know, these alternatives to say, like, I, I can't say practically, I have to say God is very much alive. God exists because, you know, what you're saying, I mean, this, this is practical, you know, moral decay. 
And so I, I appreciate the way that Spurgeon just says, like, listen, t- tried and tested, these things are wrong. I just can't walk away from that. I can't just say, like, okay, you know, I think, what, who was he talking about? Bacon, right? Like, bacon is wrong. And it's like, ah. Eh. I mean, I can't just say that that's right, right? So um, I, I love the Spurge. I really do. Um, but, you know, there's a bit of me that just says, okay, I need to confirm this. So, so I appreciate him at least giving me that leeway of saying like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And it, he's like doing Twitter snips, right? Like this is wrong because of this. And it's like a one-liner. For me though, I, okay, I, I need to unpack that a bit. You know, I, I need to, I need to, you know, and I hate to say like deconstruct, I'm with you. I, I hate to say that word, but I kind of need to deconstruct that a little bit and figure out exactly what it is you know, and why I would say, I don't believe that. Uh, I hear you. I think that when he's going through that section, which by the way, there's our t-shirt guys. Um, (laughs) Yeah. He says, here's bacon. Now I shall know everything. Um, As long as we uh, rip it completely out of context, uh, that is the perfect line. Um, No, I, I think that when he's talking about the philosophers, about all the ways that God has been teaching people to look just to him, I kind of took it in the same stride as when, when he's talking later on. And this is the part that made me laugh out loud was when he's talking about how, uh, how simple it is to just look and how we want, we, we want a religion that's very complex. We don't want to be told just look unto God, look unto Christ. We want, you know, we want to be told that we have to walk barefoot to, uh, you know, a hundred miles away. And if we tell someone that that's what you need to do to be saved, then they'll take off the next morning before breakfast. We complicate with rituals and, you know, vestments and all these different uh, things. We, we make up these needlessly complex religions. And, and I don't think that Spurgeon has anything against rituals. I think that uh, what he wants people to see is that they aren't what saves you. You know, and I don't think he has anything against philosophers. He, he was a man with, you know, thousands of books in his library, including many that, you know, people that he disagreed with and everything. So um, I don't think he's saying that there's no value in those philosophers, just that, um, that in our idolatrous nature, we tend to look at those things for our salvation and they will fail us in that regard. Right. right. Well, I, no, and I think I, I totally agree with you because I think we've seen, you know, throughout, you know, the history of the church that there's been plenty, plenty of great theologians uh, that have relied on, on philosophy for, you know, building, you know, wonderful theological thought, right? I mean, that's, that's, I think most of Aquinas is attributed to what he read in Aristotle, right? Um, especially, you know, Augustine and any of the early church fathers, um, didn't just use the things that they learned from, you know, the apostles. They also had philosophical thought that went along with it. So no, I, I, yeah, I don't think there's total a push off here of philosophy. I think it's that you cannot ground your entire thought in philosophical thought, right? I mean, you, you have to have more. And that's where I think that's the, the most wonderful line, you know, of this, this verse he keeps circling around in, in this sermon, you know, is that for I am God and there is none else. So it's don't put your philosophy beside me, right? Uh, don't put it above me. It's not the foundation of any of this. You know, I am God and there's none else. Um, so I, that's why I appreciate the, you know, the idea of being able to use, you know, philosophical thought or, or you know, even science. I don't, I don't really understand the whole, you know, science and religion have to just fight so much um, because I think there's things that just help us describe the beautiful things and, you know, that, that God has made, you know, what creation is. You know, and I say this all the time, like, you know, I can, I can't say that I'm a Beethoven scholar if I only know one piece of Beethoven, right? I, I can't say that. So I have to study all of Beethoven and say, same thing with God. It's like, you can't just say like, yeah, you know, like, 
there's only one thing about God that I study and, you know, therefore I, you know, I know who God is. It's like, no, I have to study the breadth and the depth of his works as much as absolutely possible to really try to truly understand who he is. And, and by understanding that helps me grow in my relationship. So no, I, I really, I think so. I, yeah, I didn't want it to sound like that. I was really just throwing Spurgeon as like, oh, he's just like, you know, Trump Twitter fighting with bacon, you know, it's, but no, it's, it's more along the lines that it's, uh, you know, he's saying, hey, this is wrong. I feel like to me, it's like, okay, well, I need to know why. And, th- and that helps me. That helps me in my own, okay, like, do I, do I agree with this? And I appreciate that more than anything of giving me a, like, I think this, you need to go in and decide, you know, how you feel about this type of thing. And I appreciate that part of the sermon. Me too. The The entire sermon kind of takes the notion that, that throughout history, through, through the history of all creation, that, that uh, you know, Satan did it first and we've been following him ever since, that, mm-hmm. that we behold God in his majesty. And in, if we were to imagine God without creation, just alone in his, uh, in his majesty, I think he, he uses the word supreme dread. Um, mm. Blessed forever, God alone, dread supreme. That's what it is that instead we we uh, seek to supplant him and that that's what makes salvation so beautiful is that where we would tend to look to God and think, meh, I could do better, that he takes that looking unto him and uses that as the means of our salvation, that, that rather than have that idolatrous nature that when God you know does convert us, we then look to him and that's the means of our salvation instead of our damnation. Brian, anything uh, anything you'd like to say? Well, I'll, I'll take us off the off the philosophical track, and uh, you know the again look um, the first the first word in the verse. Faith is in the looking, not in the seeing, and that was a extensive discussion. You know, in the sermon of we are we are not called to see; we are we are called to look, and is that that step of faith? In fact. In, in darkness, if we're in pitch black darkness, we can still look, whether it's to the means of our salvation, if we're lost in the darkness, if we're, you know, moving in the right direction. Um, it, it, it makes me recall, uh, you know, when Jesus healed the blind man, the blind man called out for alms, for help, and he... Uh, looked to Christ once he heard that voice still incapable of seeing prior to him being healed. And that was, uh, you know, just a profound thought. Again, it is not even uh, us. We that are, they're the ones that see it is Christ that opens our eyes at our moment of salvation. And we can just looking is, is what we're called to do. Again, it simplifies the, the message of the gospel, as you said, if we're if we were called to go walk somewhere a hundred miles away barefoot and and go bathe there, and all of our problems would be solved. Much like the uh, disdain with Naaman when he received the message from Elijah, well, go wash seven times. What what good is that going to do me? Well, it's it's following that command of God and having that faith that He will. Uh, fulfill all that he says that he will do. I love it that from that section, Spurgeon says, it does not say I am to see. It only says, look, if we look on a thing in the dark, we cannot see it, but we have done what we were told. So if a sinner only looks to Jesus, he will save him for Jesus in the dark is as good as Jesus in the light. 
and Jesus when you cannot see him is as good as Jesus when you can. I distinctly remember I, I was at work at the time and I was listening to it on my uh, headphones. Don't tell the safety coordinator that I was doing that, but I heard that and, and I actually had to stop and go somewhere where I could backtrack, listen to it again and, and write it down. I think I sent it in a text to Pamela first and then to Josh or, or maybe both of you on the Slack channel, but I, it struck me, Jesus in the dark is as good as Jesus in the light and Jesus when you cannot see him is as good as Jesus when you can. Because there have definitely been times for me where I couldn't see Jesus. And uh, the fact is that it's it's not the strength of my own conviction, of, of my own certainty, if I were to try to apply some arbitrary level and say, well, as long as you're 51% sure that, that God is real and Jesus is God, then you get in. But, uh, you know, anyone that's 49.5, you know, is, is out. The fact is that when we're saved, it's not on the strength of, of my conviction. It's on the object of my faith. And, and that's in Jesus. And that's the part of that sermon that struck me so completely that I had to stop and say something. Should we go around one more time, Josh? Was there anything that, that you wanted to say about this? Yeah, you know, I, um, you know, his second point about salvation being his greatest work. You know, I really kind of thought through that and struggled a bit. And, and, and I, I see what he's saying. But it, when I initially read that first sentence, I was like, well, wait, do we say that any of God's actions is greater or lesser than any of his, any of his other actions, right? Like, does anything God, anything that he does, is it less than anything else he's ever done, right? So how can you ever say like something so great? Um, but as I read through this, it just helped put me into, uh, it just helped put me in, it's like away from trying to objectively look at God. And then it put me into subjectively looking at God. And that was more along the lines of, wait a second, instead of saying and trying to, you know, take such a far step back and saying like, oh, this is who God is. And these are his attributes. You know, it, it gave me, this is, you know, Josh, Josh Williams sitting here having some assurance that he is going to be able to be reconciled with the creator of the universe eventually. So, so reading through that second half, I just got the subjective feelings of like, you know what? Yeah, I can absolutely call that his greatest work. Because of that, I'm able to now like be reconciled with him, be with him again. You know, that's, this is, this is, I don't know. To me, I was like, yeah, you know what? I get it. Yes, it is his greatest work. And, and it took me kind of taking that objective view and kind of turning it into a subjective view, um, which I believe is very much appropriate uh, because you know, so it's good you, when you study, you know, maybe who God is to kind of th- look at things objectively and kind of have like an academic, you know, output about it. But there is a point of saying like, listen, this is a very personal thing to me. It's an absolutely personal thing because I think overall, you know, we're hearing about this a lot lately is that God is very personal because uh, what would salvation be if, if it wasn't personal? Right. And, and so, you know, I tell that to my kids a lot all the time. I'm like, listen, there's two way conversations here. You know, there's two way relationships. You can't have third person interference. And I very much believe that with our relationship with God. And, you know, I tell my kids, I tell my wife, I tell, tell a lot of people about this. It's like, I cannot be the person that interjects whatsoever with you and your relationship with God. That is all on you. And that is very much subjective. So, yeah, that really spun me around reading that, kind of having my initial just what does this really mean? Define greatest, you know, like uh, instead of having that initial kind of just thought that I usually do uh, and really spinning it on its head to, to me just saying, wow, like I just, I set in, in awe so much, you know, of what 
God's plan was of not just of not just saying like, you know what? Yeah, you're coming to heaven. It's more of like they're, they're the process of Christ humbling himself to come to earth, to suffering on a cross, to, to defeating death, um, to providing us hope, to being the foundation for his church. Like there is so much um, that, that comes along with that, that, you know, you stand back and you say, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying, Spurgeon, you know, sorry, sorry to have, sorry to have doubted you for a second there, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, all the ends of the earth, that was another, you know, key phrase within the passage in Isaiah. And you know, think about what, what are the ends of the earth? And we always think about that from a, a missiological perspective. Spurgeon, you know, would have been a contemporary of David Livingstone and the African inland mission. So his context is somewhat those unreached tribes in Africa. And he describes himself both in his account of his salvation in this sermon as it was as if I was one of those people in the most remote part of Africa that had never heard, uh, even though he had grown up hearing the message. So what are the ends of the earth? If God is omnipresent, if he's watching over all of his creation, there's not one of us that could be physically more distant from God than anyone else. But it's that separation of sin. And in, in reality, prior to our salvation, in other cases, in our, in our timeline of our faith, whether we're in a, in a Western culture, in an area that is laden with many churches, many, many options to exercise our faith, we are the ends of the earth. Uh, he, Spurgeon in, in the sermon talks about the, the drunkard um, being the person who's the end of the earth. And whoever has not, um, looked unto Christ, you know, they are that, that end of the earth with respect to their relationship with God, the distance and the chasm that's presented to be in between them and God because of sin and their need for a savior. That, uh, that stood out to me because, uh, again, you know, always had the teaching, had the, the representation of the, the ends of the earth being a a physical state, those, those, those people over there who haven't heard um, that uh, we need to give a chance to as well and not reflecting upon ourselves as, uh, you know, the separation that sin creates between man and God is far beyond any uh, geographical distance that could exist. Yeah, that, that is great in that segment. Those are the people who have gone the farthest. So I, I know that's been me. I've gone I've gone the farthest. Paul said he'd gone the farthest, you know, chief of sinners. I guess the last uh, thing I'll say about it in closing was one of my favorite uh, things that he says is that the gospel is simple. Look, it's four letters, two of them alike. So just a very pithy statement, you know, great, great way for him to, to pound home that message that it's, that it's simple. And I certainly hope that anyone who hears us, if they haven't already looked unto Christ, um, that they would do that as well. So I'm going to put contact information in the uh, show notes and I'll run through credits later on and add that in. Thank you guys for joining me. I appreciate the time. It was good seeing you guys over Zoom. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, great to see you too. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. We'll see you guys later. And thank you for listening. You can find me online at cigarswithspurgeon at gmail.com 
My Twitter handle is at cigars with CHS. The text of The Great Change from Spurgeon's autobiography can be found at the resource library of the Spurgeon Center for Biblical Preaching at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. The text of Sovereignty and Salvation can be found at the Spurgeon Archive. You can listen to both The Great Change and Sovereignty and Salvation read aloud at hearspurgeon.com or by downloading and subscribing to the Hear Spurgeon podcast. And links to all of these will be available in the show notes. Now for our benediction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word.